Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're very happy to have you on um, as uh, one of the leading strategists in the region for the second largest Chinese bank in the world, so China Construction Bank. So thanks for your time and maybe for the audience uh, joining in, you could give a little brief introduction of who you are and uh, maybe a little bit about you. Sure. Uh, well, I've been in Asia for um, um, probably about 16, 17 years. Um, I came over to be the uh, regional strategist for Deutsche Bank. Uh, and I was with them uh, for a time before I joined uh, CCB. Uh, before that, I was a global strategist for uh, Deutsche Bank in Australia. So I uh, have really looked across all asset classes, equities, bonds, credit, commodities, currencies. I was probably one of the worst currency strategists in the world at that time, but it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so... More recently, I've been mainly doing, uh, you know, main, mainly focused on Asian equities, right, and uh, and Asian investment. And uh, in addition to that, you you uh, also uh, are in touch and advise some uh, some family offices as well. Uh, are they? Uh, I guess there are some of the Chinese uh, family offices uh, that you've you've just encountered that you are doing some advisory for. Yeah, there's been a you know a, a big um, growth in family offices in Hong Kong, uh, particularly I would say over the last five years. But uh, you know a lot of these uh, a lot of these guys have been investing abroad for quite a quite a long time. You know maybe fifteen years. Um, but you know there's there's definitely a keen desire to broaden their portfolios beyond beyond just China. Do you find that the families that you deal with, uh, are they market savvy or is there a, quite a large uh, learning curve that they need to go up uh, as far as global investing goes? I would say they're very savvy investors, um, but I would also say they have huge, uh, huge biases in, in terms of what they want to invest in and the way that they like to invest um, uh, you know, and, and I would say generally there's a very unrealistic, uh, it, it, it's taken some time to, to, to focus more on risk than on return. Um, <laughs> but generally I'd say the family offices in, in, in Hong Kong are becoming, you know, as sophisticated as family offices, uh, you know, anywhere else. Uh, there are still very big differences though. I mean, most of the family offices here have, you know, 60, 70, sometimes 80% of the portfolio in physical real estate, whereas family offices in Europe in particular have much less property and are much more heavily bond focused. Right. So that, that, that's, you know, part of an ongoing evolution, I would say. I guess it does make sense uh, given the Asian preference for hard assets and real estate. Um, all right. Well, yeah. let's, uh, let's dive into uh, maybe we could start with a little overview of the markets. I mean, you're sitting at uh, privy to, I guess, some pretty uh, interesting information being there at the second largest bank um, in China. 
So from, the, from your perspective, um, how are we looking uh, right now? I mean, markets are as expensive, it seems, as they've uh, ever been historically. Uh, and it's quite worrying for a lot of people. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like despite the macro data, geopolitical data that keeps coming out, um, and the obvious sort of headwinds up ahead with interest rates and, and even sort of the U.S. debt ceiling and this sort of thing, uh, the markets still keep continuing to melt up. So um, maybe you could give us a quick overview of, of how you think, how you're looking at the current market environment globally right now. Sure. The, uh, well, look, I think the, the first thing to remember is that equity markets always peak just before everything falls apart, right? So it's very normal. Yeah, it's very normal for, for markets to be strong um, late in the cycle. And that's where we are. We're very late in the cycle. Um, and, you know, I think the way that we're viewing markets globally is that, you know, we're in a very treacherous environment here where, um, you know, the rally in the U.S. is being driven by, you know, an un unprecedented, uh, at least small number of companies who've got very little market breadth. We've got, as you say, historically high valuations. Uh, on, on our work, the U.S. Uh, debt uh, levels are back where they were at the peak, uh, you know, in the last three cycles, just before we went into a fairly significant decline. Um, Europe. Uh, everyone's excited about Europe at the moment. I don't think we've seen any any fundamental improvement in uh, in the sovereign debt problem there. Uh, I, I think bond yields are artificially low. Are they a bubble? I don't know, but definitely they're causing massive distortions. Um, you know, so so in a nutshell, we think the markets are about as risky as they get, uh, and we think uh, the the market is 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 about as optimistically priced as it can get. So that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, I'll give you an example. High yield uh, debt in Europe is trading, uh, you know, not far from about three and a half percent at the moment. That's the yield you get. You know, I think the long term default rate on high yield debt is about three percent, right? So you're almost <laughs> to lose money on on that pretty risky instrument, right? So my guess is developed markets uh, have minimal upside from here, and I think as we move into 2018. A couple of things will drive them, start to start to drive them lower. I think the cumulative effect of Fed tightening is going to have more impact than what people think. Secondly, I think the, the mobile phone upgrade, which is driving companies like Apple and, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, Samsung here in Asia, that upgrade cycle will, will have peaked out by mid next year. In terms of the Asian markets, we're a lot better positioned here. We don't have the extreme valuations. Um, we always benefit when the US market gets to this point. We get mm. the overflow. Money's starting to come out of the developed markets. It's coming into Asia. Uh, I would say for now, uh, in this part of the world, you just want to be in, in Hong Kong, China. I would f almost forget the rest, uh, principally because... Uh, uh, we also benefit from the outflow from China. You know, China has uh, some pretty significant capital outflow restrictions at the moment. Pretty much the only way people can legally get their money out is to buy Hong Kong stocks. So, you know, it's cheaper than most of the region. It's got better flow dynamics. It's got stronger earnings momentum and the Asia markets are starting to break out. So, you know, I think in the, in the short term, we could easily get quite euphoric here. The Hong Kong market typically gets wildly euphoric, uh, rallies here are fairly short, 
you know, I think we're, we're sitting at about 28,000 on the Hang Seng at the moment. We could easily get to 33,000 in the next few months. Um, but this is a rally to sell. It's a rally to sell. It's not right. going to be sustained. Well, I think uh, when it comes to investing in Asian markets, um, you know, there seems to be sort of, uh, in my mind, there's two major sort of uh, deterrents for global investors, international investors, Western investors. Number one is uh, something that's uh, a cognitive bias called home, home, uh, home country bias, which uh, it's not, you know, specific to Westerners, you know, Asians have it too. People like to invest in what they know. So uh, mm-hmm. When you talk about U.S.-based investors, they're, they're probably 80-plus percent allocated to their domestic uh, equity markets or domestic markets uh, or instruments in general. Um, so that's one thing. And, but then when they do get outside of that and cross that bias and they come to Asia, they oftentimes struggle and, and, uh, and uh, end up uh, not really knowing how to navigate the waters, not knowing much about the markets and they end up getting burned. So essentially that reinforces their uh, home country bias. So um, when it comes to Asia, maybe you could give us a little bit of the sort of the background, the nuances of the markets here and uh, what, what are some of the major pitfalls that foreign investors coming into this market often face? Yeah, well, there are many. Just like any market has lots of pitfalls, and we've all we've all made uh, more mistakes than we've uh, done well in investing. Um, I, I think um, one of the main problems when people invest in Asia, uh, you know, people come here for growth, and they get seduced by the growth. Um, but you know, uh, equity markets are driven by supply as well as demand. And when you look at, in particular at the China market, but but really all of the markets in the region, uh, you know, uh, have enormous uh, supply. Uh, you know, so China alone is going to list 200 banks over the next few years. Enormous quantity of paper. Uh, so that obviously is going to affect the performance of the Chinese banks uh, over the next few years, uh, you know, because people are going to have too many banks in their portfolio. Um, but, but also I think... Uh, you know, often people will look for, for companies that have got strong growth, whereas often it's the balance sheet that's driving that growth. You know, the companies are either taking on a lot of debt or they're issuing a lot of equity. So very often, uh, you know, people will get pulled into companies um, that offer very high growth profiles and get disappointed by that. Um, the, the other problem, I think, with Asia is that, uh, you know, as you, I think, already alluded to, the, the investment psychology here is very different. Um, you know, to most, uh, I guess, guys in Asia, investment is the same pretty much as gambling. <laughs> and, you know, you know when, I, when Asians invest, they're impatient. They're, often they're looking for absurdly high returns. Um, so if a stock is okay but has no fundamental drivers, it will go backwards. And very often uh, you'll see uh, people coming into Asia, they'll find a stock and they'll say, oh, that looks quite good. Um, but it's got nothing really going for it. And they can't understand why it's, it's not going sideways, it's going down. It's very frustrating. Um, and so Asia can be very challenging for value investors, mm. I would say. It can be a, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a sinkhole, you know. Um, mm. And what, what normally happens, therefore, is when people come into this market, they start to invest like the locals. They get sucked into chasing high-momentum stocks, um, 
And this is fine, but the problem is that because because this market's like a roller coaster, uh, it, it, it's it, it's not really the same as the US. Often in the US, once the market's peaked, the high momentum stocks still can perform quite well. Here, once the market's peaked, high momentum stocks tank. They just absolutely tank. And so often we find... And, uh, you know, guys coming into the market halfway through a rally, late in the rally, they get seduced by the high momentum stocks, you know, uh, you know, and then they get very disappointed when the market goes down and then they don't come back for another few years. Um, the other thing which I think is, is new for a lot of investors in this market is risk really has a big impact on performance in the way that equity markets uh, perform in Asia. Uh, and so you really need to understand what drives these markets. When does, when does the market rally? Why does it rally? When's it going up? When's it going down? And there's a lot of different uh, you know, fundamental drivers, but basically... You can, you can really narrow it down to a couple of things, one of which is the US dollar. When the dollar is weakening, as it has been, that's when these markets really run. Um, if the dollar is starting to turn around and go back up again, that's going to change the risk environment. I think the other big pitfall is that I think when people come to invest in Asia, they treat the region as, you know, as, as a homogenous zone, but it's not. I mean, the, for example, you know, in Korea, it's a very old market demographically. There's a lot of consumer debt. It's fundamentally more like a, a developed market, whereas, uh, you know, some of the younger markets have got very strong demographics and not much debt. And, of course, obviously China is sort of in the middle. Its, its demographics are ageing rapidly and it has accumulated a lot of debt over the last few years. So, um, you know, I think, I think but, but basically depending on where we are in the cycle, you need to focus on different markets. Right here, right now, late in the cycle, you really only want to look at one market. You want to look at China. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, touching on what you just said about uh, sort of value investing in Asia was – extremely challenging. You see, we see a lot of sort of uh, Western educated uh, you know, investors come over and they've learned a lot of fundamentals by the books and they come over and, and they realize that the companies are completely different. A lot of them have large uh, state-owned holdings or large families behind them and, right. uh, and have completely no sort of shareholder-friendly type uh, you know, processes or um, and, and because a stock is listed, doesn't that they, these families oftentimes still think that they own it. It just happens to be listed on a stock exchange. So they don't really care about the shareholders. They just still continue to operate it like a family business, uh, which I always found was quite interesting. And, and then you throw in sort of the accounting uh, sort of differences and nuances and irregularities that happen. And it just makes for an extremely difficult uh, market to trade. Now, having said that, like you said, there's uh, a lot of, uh, it's people trading it like a casino. Um, there's a lot of momentum of players out there, a lot of retail players as well, um, which also makes it challenging. Uh, although theoretically, if you take, for example, like the Chinese market, Asia market, it's something like 80 plus percent dominated by retail investors. So, in theory, one would think that a professional or institutional investor would have an advantage there in generating alpha, and yet they still keep coming in and stumbling. So I've always found that to be interesting uh, as well. Um, and again, I think the Chinese market is very 
complicated, complex, and touching on your point about Asia being completely, you know, it's not homogenous. There's every single country trades differently. Even within China, all the different provinces have their own nuances. So it's an extremely, extremely challenging landscape to navigate. Um, and I guess that makes it fun for some investors, but for others, it makes it very frustrating. So when we look at China specifically, uh, you know, having, I want to touch on a little bit about China uh, without going too deep into the rabbit hole here. But since you have, uh, since you are working at a Chinese bank and you sort of uh, get some of uh, the information that maybe some of us aren't privy, as privy to, um, you know, there's a lot of concerns about Ch the Chinese economy, the banking system in particular, um, uh, you know, the, the currency as well. And these are all, these are all, again, things that deter investors from, from, from looking at the market. Um, so can you perhaps give your insider's perspective, being, having been in the region for a while and having looked at China for a while? What actually is going on up there? <laughs> Are we facing a banking crisis soon? Is, is our current administration uh, false in saying that China is manipulating their currency? Okay. Well, uh, I guess the first thing I would say is that no one really has a clue, right? Um, I, 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 think, I think if you come across someone who says they fully understand China, then uh, <laughs> they really don't. Um, my take... Uh, is that um, there, there are some major misperceptions about China um, in, in the West. And I think one misperception is that there is this monolithic policy view within China. Uh, but, but that is not the case. You, you have you know, a great diversity of policy views within China about how China should evolve and, and about what's actually going on in China. Um, so, you know, and, and region to region, it's very, very different, right? So if I look at, say, Shenzhen across the border from Hong Kong, this is a powerhouse. It will always be a powerhouse. It will, uh, it, it will be a dominant economy in the, you know, in the world for the next 100 years. Uh, and several other of the eastern provinces will remain very strong. Um, and, and that's simply because of the tech advantages that they have. I mean, China is becoming very dominant in key areas of tech. Um, so uh, the first, first, I think I'd make three observations. The first observation is that, yes, uh, the growth of credit in China is troubling and will ultimately lead to a significant and sharp slowdown at some future point. Uh, the second thing, I, as so you know, I think most Western commentators think that that future point is tomorrow or you know a year ago. Uh, my my feeling is that China still has quite a lot of debt capacity on the central government's balance sheet. Um, you know, so they have been taking bad debts off the banks' balance sheets. Um, th there, there are probably some problems with the smaller banks, um, but I'm not expecting a banking crisis anytime soon. Um, what I what I think uh, though is that uh, you know it, China's economy is, is so big and it's so vast. It, it, it depending on what you look at, you'll you'll get a different 
point of view. But my, my overall view is that the auto sector in China is developing very, very rapidly. You can see uh, Hyundai in Korea is in all sorts of trouble. Uh, and in the, the uh, Japanese car makers are also in trouble. They're going to be in a hell of a lot more trouble, um, I would say, two or three years from now. So there's some real strengths in China's economy there. Also on the fintech side, also, uh, you know, in terms of um, uh, just in terms of the whole e-commerce side, it, depending on how it evolves. But, uh, you know, I do think that... Um, you know, my personal view is China's here to stay. China's a major economy. Uh, I think China's economy will run into problems at some future point. Uh, but every, nearly every developed economy in the world has unsustainable debt levels, right? right. right. Uh, and and really lousy politics, really poor uh, economic leadership, and weak demographics. Uh, the emphasis on education in in the West is in decline. So, you know, my overarching view on China is that it's going to do well over mm -hmm. the longer term. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, fundamentally, I think that uh, that will extend across the region from China. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the, I'm here for a reason. I, 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 I think it's one of the better prospects. Yeah, uh, I, I think um, I think that there... Uh, Investors have to be careful about mainstream media, particularly in the U.S. It's, it's extremely sort of biased and, and angled. It has a very political tilt to it, whether you realize it or not. Uh, and I, I guess once you get over here, and this was the case for me, you kind of are able to differentiate between what is just propaganda, fear-mongering, uh, political agenda, uh, speaking versus what is actually the, the reality of the situation. So I'm yeah. actually in the same boat as you, Mark. I mean, that's the reason I'm here too. Uh, I, I, I certainly think that China will have some growing pains, but for the long run, they're not going to go anywhere. Um, and I think that uh, there are a lot of opportunities um, that we will see within the next five to 10 years uh, across a, a number of different sectors and industries within China. Um, so let's move on to then um, sort of, uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you do some advising for family offices and um, how, how would, how, what's your sort of investment process? How does that look like? You know, given the backdrop of what we just went over um, globally, where we're sitting right now with the, you know, valuations where they are, obviously there's some geopolitical flashpoints coming up ahead that could potentially uh, derail this bull market run. Um, how do you uh, position yourself right now? And maybe you could walk through a little bit of the methodology um, on how you look at investing in your as uh, asset allocation right now. Sure. So, I mean, uh, it, it's fairly uh, standard, I guess, approach uh, for, a, for a, you know, a family office sort of approach. We take a top-down approach. Um, and we begin with an asset, a broad asset allocation across bonds, equities, um, uh, property, commodities, alternative assets. Um, uh, and uh, that top-down process is really driven by some fairly structured decision rules, um, which uh, try to measure where we are in the economic cycle globally 
and try to measure how much risk there is. So basically at the moment that uh, framework is telling us where uh, late in the cycle, we're in that part of the cycle where we normally uh, see the commencement of a major equity bear market where we normally see eventually uh, a recession globally. Um, and uh, depending on how uh, things pan out over the next few months, um, uh, you know, we may, we may see a risk event very soon um, uh, or, or it may be delayed. It just, it just depends. But, you know, obviously within that context, uh, you, know, we, you know, we're running a very small exposure to developed equity markets. Most of the equity exposure now is in emerging markets, for instance, mm. um, and most of the fixed income exposure is also in emerging markets. Uh, just because, uh, you know, the view is that we're not getting enough return from from the developed bond markets, but also uh, because the, the, you know, the developed, the emerging market bond markets, um, you know, have much stronger demographics. The, physically, they're stronger. Um, w- you know, we have a pretty big overweight in gold. Mm. Uh, and uh, and some other defensive assets, um, mainly because I'm I'm really not sure how this cycle is going to pan out. I don't know if we're going to see some inflation or not. Uh, but generally, we're in that part of the cycle where where gold should pop. Um, cryptocurrencies have made life quite difficult, I think, for asset allocation because uh, a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the crazy money's gone there. Uh, and I think it's it's drained some money out of the gold market, so it's not really performed as well as we would have thought. Um, you know, I think if the dollar continues to break down, we're going to see quite a big move at some point in oil. So we have oil over, you know, but this all comes through a, quite a structured process. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we then sub-allocate uh, according to, um, you know, within uh, across equities uh, and across bonds. Uh, largely on the currency view. And the currency view for now is that the dollar will continue to weaken. Mm. Um, And then when we get down to looking at uh, um, uh, Asia, generally speaking, uh, it really depends on a lot of things. But um, in, in essence, the easiest way to invest in Asia is to keep it simple and work out what kind of risk environment you're in um, because it's it's so driven by momentum, and because mood is so important in this market, if you can work out roughly what the mood's going to be, it's fairly simple to either say, well, people are going to be looking for momentum, or they're going to be looking for defensive stocks, or they're going to be looking for cyclicals, or whatever. And that's that's a big part of it. Um, so, but generally speaking, um, you know, for the stocks, we run a screening process. And that screening process focuses very heavily on looking at the cash flow characteristics of companies. Mm. Um, the most important thing, if you're looking for single stocks in Asia, the most important thing to focus on is look at the cash flow, particularly Chinese companies. Um, look for uh, what we call you know, accruals. Uh, basically, look for companies that are booking lots of revenue without getting the cash in the door. We avoid those sort of companies. And generally speaking, what you'll find is that sometimes uh, a screening process throws up lots of companies. There are lots of good companies. Generally speaking, in that environment, you may as well just go with an ETF. (laughs) (laughs) There's not going to be a lot of alpha. But if there are very few companies that have desirable characteristics, then you want to overweight those, those companies in particular. 
But in general, it's a mix of ETFs. It's a mix of some style investing at the moment. You know, you want to have some momentum in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, we have fairly concentrated momentum. And then, um, uh, you know, a handful of stocks that you really like, maybe three stocks, um, where you really like the company. Usually, these are small mid-cap uh, growth type companies where the management is solid. Um, and, uh, and, and these are the only sort of buy and hold type thing. Everything else is uh, prepared to be flipped. But, you know, these sorts, these sorts of companies, uh, if you believe in them, then you stick with them, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's important to differentiate that, and particularly when you're dealing with a family office type investor who, for large part, unless they're a very large family office that has sort of an in-house investment team and this sort of thing, um, they're not going to be, you know, watching the markets and, and, you know, savvy enough to be trading in and out of these sorts of positions. So that layer that you said where you find good companies, uh, maybe in the mid cap range where they have solid management, but, you know, they're more of a buy and hold type play. Those seem like an ideal fit for that type of client. You don't have to, <clears throat> they can sleep at night knowing that the, you know, they don't have to trade in and out of a position. Um, right. So from a, just a broad top-down view, I mean, you mentioned earlier that a lot of Asian family offices have a large allocation in real estate, up to 80%. Um, so would you then uh, recommend that, say, the non-fixed hard asset portion of that, let's say 20% of their overall net worth, how would you then divvy that up at this point where we are in the cycle between, say, equities fixed income and, uh, you know, some of the other asset, alternative asset classes? Okay, so, uh, well, basically, um, we, we start off with, with essentially, I'll keep it simple, if we think equities, bonds, gold, um, in, in where we are in the cycle, we're actually still overweight equities, believe it or not. Um, but that tilt has massively shifted to emerging markets um, since... Uh, well, beginning beginning of last year, but but continuing on through. Um, but uh, now, in terms of what we'd regard as a core kind of uh, sort of a neutral allocation, we're, we're probably only a couple of percentage points above that. The equity allocation uh, is not that high. Uh, you know, a core uh, sort of a central base case would be around about twenty five percent. Um, the uh, the big overweight is in um, still gold, uh, oil, uh, and some other uh, commodity cyclicals. Um, they would normally run in this phase of the cycle, uh, but the 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 kind of industrial metals and so on have already been cut. So it's really just oil and gold essentially. Um, and then the bonds are underweight. Mm. Um, and uh, when the U.S. Treasury yield, if the U.S. Treasury yield ever gets to 2.5, 2.6%, uh, that'll be a big trigger for us. We'll shift overweight fixed income. Uh, and, and that will be a trigger, possible trigger for a risk event for us. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, you, you mentioned a couple uh, sort of uh, tips or pieces of advice uh, first, keep it simple, obviously, uh, you know, with the, the vast, uh, variance across all the markets out here. It's definitely uh, wise to keep it simple. Secondly, look at cash flow, which I think is 
uh, it's kind of a fundamental process, but a lot of people, like you say, out here in Asia, particularly don't look at that sort of thing because yeah. they're just chasing that momentum, chasing short-term yield. Um, any other quick tips for, say, first-time investors that are looking to come into the market, maybe particularly into China? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've never invested in China before, you, you, you probably need to uh, at least find some kind of advisor. Um, mm -hmm. Look for someone who's been in the region for a fair amount of time. Um, I would say, um, you, you, you know, can you imagine going to a resort and learning how to scuba dive without knowing how to swim? You know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I find it amazing the number of newsletters out there and the number of advisors out there, the number of books on investments out there that have been written where it's quite obvious that the person who's advising or writing the book doesn't have a clue why stock markets go up or down. Yeah. They're just selling some system. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, for me, the key thing about Asia is the, the importance of macro, the importance of risk. Um, so you want someone who can kind of explain to you, you know, who, who at least has a strong emphasis on, on, on how Asian markets work and, ha you know, ways of measuring the risk environment. And secondly, I would, I would look for, um, you know, um, if I'm trying to choose some kind of investment advice, I would look for someone who does focus on quality companies, has some, you know, at least has some emphasis on, on cash flow um, and, and possibly, uh, you know, office style portfolios because I think that um, there is no all weather portfolio in Asian equities. That's the thing. You know? <laughs> Ray Dalio. <laughs> if you're coming out of a big bear market, you want to be owning very different companies than you want to be owning right now, you know. In the U.S. market, it's much more. It's a much more measured market. The valuations don't get so stretched. We don't get so far from fundamentals, but here we do. You know. So uh, let's talk just in the next sort of six months. Your outlook on markets. Um, you know, again, we're we're late cycle. Um, there's a couple of things, a uh, couple of headwinds ahead of us. Obviously, um, you mentioned the sort of the coming to the end of that smart phone upgrade cycle as well. Um, but you did say that we might see a little bit more uh, of a run here, uh, particularly in the HSI. Um, wh what do you, what's your outlook for the next six months on global markets? Um, well, you know, my guess is that uh, the U.S. will be putting in a big rounded top over the next three to six months. Um, and in that environment, I think we'll find that uh, the dollar will weaken. Uh, I think the U.S. data is still quite strong, but I think it will start to show fairly clear evidence of deterioration. As that happens, the dollar will come under pressure. Uh, and that's a kind of a classic environment. I, like, I call it the E.M. Schadenfreude trade, you know, where you, Asian <laughs> markets benefit from, from pain in the U.S., you know. So, yeah. I, you know, I think that uh, we will pop a bit more. Um, I think uh, I think at this market probably you know conservatively ten percent maybe if it's normal kind of rally maybe another fifteen twenty percent, um, but I, I think by early next year by January next year you probably want to be in lockdown mode, um, and expecting weakness uh, through the course of much of next year, um, and 
uh, I think uh, that next sell-off after it, I think that's when you'll get a very strong rally, uh, particularly in the China market. And the reason why is that China will run, will be forced to run easier monetary conditions than they have been for the last couple of years. And I think that will allow, that combined with a, a weaker dollar will allow better liquidity conditions in China. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking you'll get a really big bull market after that. So, you know, if you want to hop in now, do it for a few months. But after that, keep your powder dry because then I think you're going to get a, a good solid bull market in Asia. When I think Western countries will be kind of bogged down, you know? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting outlook. I, I, um, I like that outlook. Uh, I think, I think that's, that's pretty wise. It's, uh, again, uh, something you mentioned earlier was this is definitely a rally to be selling right now. You want to have some of that gunpowder ready uh, for some sort of, if there's a dislocation event or a drawdown in the markets. Um, and be able to position yourself uh, for for next year. Um, well, Mark, it's been such a pleasure, man, uh, catching up with you. And uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts and your insights. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on these days. Anything exciting going on um, and uh, into the, the end of the year or anything exciting you're working on for next year, both pro either professionally or personally? Well, um, I'm pretty busy with my day job. Uh, I'm pretty busy uh, with uh, friends and so forth. But uh, I've got a few things. I'm, I'm putting some. I'm gonna. I got three projects I'm working on. The first one is uh, I'm just uh, going to start a blog. I'm, I'm probably the, the the most un uh, internet savvy person on the planet. So it's proving a bit difficult, but I think it will <laughs> get going at some point. Um, the, the second thing is uh, I'm working on a couple of uh, direct property. Uh, investments mainly in the Philippines uh, and the third thing is uh, I started looking at the frontier markets um, I think the frontier markets are, are very interesting um, from a cyclical standpoint over the next few years uh, I, I think you'll find that countries like Laos and Cambodia and Burma will really um, do very well uh, partly as a result of the you know the offshore spending initiatives of the of the mainland Chinese, you right. know, the one belt one road initiative. Sure. But also, I just think these markets are are reaching a kind of a critical mass. They're they're kind of quite sexy. So I started looking at them. So yeah, there there's sorts of projects I'm looking at. The the one belt one road initiative is actually a, a, on a lot of people's radars because it's been talked about so much. But um, I I haven't actually seen anything sort of concrete and actionable. Uh, other than sort of high-level uh, stock plays on that. So I'll be very interested to see what you discover uh, as you do your research in uh, emerging markets. Uh, or, uh, also, could you, is there any sort of thesis on the Philippines specifically and why you're looking at property there? Well, my wife's Filipina. Um, <laughs> I, uh, there you go. I think it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cheap a property market where you can get very good yield, um, and uh, you know it's got it's an, it's got excellent demographics. I, I think uh, you know uh, politically, some people have concerns, but uh, you know I think politically it's it's probably the most strongest democracy in Asia. Uh, English speaking uh, now becoming quite friendly with uh, you know I think they're playing the Chinese and the Americans off quite well against each other yeah for sure um, 
but you know, you can get yield there. You know, it's all about yield for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll be uh, definitely interested to hear more about uh, your projects there as well. So um, once again, thank you so much for your time. Where's the best place that uh, we, our audience can connect with you, find you, follow you, maybe learn a little bit more about your projects that are coming up? Um, well, I'll be posting some things uh, on a website called greygull.org. Uh, okay. uh, so, uh, you know, if people want to look for me, they can, they can find me there. Fantastic. We'll have that all uh, linked up in the show notes. Well, thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate your thoughts and your insights. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Welcome, Jay. Thank you very much. All right. See you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.